Good morning, all. I hope you are awake and that you had a, a good breakfast with just enough pancakes to keep you going, but not enough to send you right back to bed. The danger of pancakes. Uh, it is good to be here. Join me as I pray to open us in this third session. Father, I do pray for awakeness and alertness, uh, both physically, as uh, some of us have not gotten as much sleep as we would have liked, and others are just exhausted from so much activity. So I pray for a physical wakefulness that would allow all of us to pay attention to what you want to teach us now. And then I pray also for a spiritual wakefulness, a wakefulness that would Pay attention to your word so as to receive it. And I pray that if there are some here who have never been awakened from their spiritual slumber, that you would send your Holy Spirit to give life where there is now only deadness, to give wakefulness where there is sleep. As the scripture says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Christ shine on us this day. Amen. Remember those fortune cookies we ate the first night we were here, along with our orange chicken? Uh, there were some interesting ones at our table. One of the people at our table opened the fortune cookie and it said, A danger foreseen is half avoided. It's good advice. If you see a danger coming, then you got a better chance of avoiding it before it gets to you. Rachel's said, Compliment three people every day. Which is more of like a fortune command than a fortune cookie. <laughs> I'm not sure what's up with that. Um, I, I had one that said, A closed mind is like a closed arm, just like a block of wood. I accidentally bit off part of the paper and chewed it up, so I'm not really sure what that middle part said. <laughs> then here's another one. A clear conscience is a sign of a faulty memory. That kind of hits hard, like, like a clear conscience means there's something wrong with your memory, because if you're remembering accurately, you're going to find all sorts of things that your conscience doesn't feel right about. And, and viewed purely just from an earthly perspective, that's correct. Anybody who's walking around and being like, no, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I've never done anything that I regret. And that person's probably deceiving themselves or just putting on a front. The good news of the gospel is that it is possible to have a clear conscience and a reliable memory. In fact, it's possible for you to be able to remember many things that you have done that are wrong and that you are ashamed of, that you feel guilty about, and yet still have a clear conscience because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to discuss enjoying the sun every day. Day. That's the title of this message, Enjoying the Sun Every Day. The big idea of this message, which you probably want to write down, is we enjoy the sun by receiving his grace in exchange for our sins. We enjoy the sun by receiving his grace in exchange for our sins. Last session, we learned that we enjoy the Father by receiving his love. This session, we learned that we enjoy the Son, especially by receiving his grace in exchange for our sins. 
want to look into this just a little bit, and then we'll go to a misconception and some practical ways. So a very similar outline to yesterday. What does it mean to say that we receive his grace in exchange for our sins? How does that work? Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the Messiah who was to come. It describes the Messiah as a suffering servant. And Isaiah writes in verses 4 through 6 of this individual who we know to be Jesus Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah is describing is a sacrifice that would be an exchange, a swap. This suffering servant would die not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. His people who are full of transgressions, iniquities, sins, sorrows. His people's sins will get transferred onto him. And he will bear the punishment that they deserve so that they might not have to bear it. The Apostle Paul says something similar over in 2 Corinthians after Christ has come. 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking of the Father, it says, He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you place your faith in Christ, a great exchange happens. All of your sin gets reckoned to Christ as though it belonged to him. And all of his righteousness gets reckoned to you as though it belonged to you. And all of the punishment that is due your sin is borne by Christ on that cross. And all of the blessing that is due to Christ because of his obedience is applied to you solely on account of Christ. And that is the fundamental way that you receive grace in exchange for your sin. Since you consider yourself and see yourself to be full of sin inside and out. You recognize that you can do nothing to scrub yourself clean. No amount of good works can suffice. No number of righteous deeds can make you approved before God. And so you see Jesus perfectly sufficient to deal with your sins and to give you righteousness instead. And so you do, and you go to him, and you ask him to take your sin and give you his grace instead. And that is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ does, in fact, take sin from those who trust him and give them his grace instead. Are you still holding on to your sin? Are you one of those who has sin and has never actually exchanged it with Jesus for his righteousness? Are you still holding on to your sin? Don't do that anymore. Why would you do that? 
It could be that you're, you're too proud to admit that you need any help. You want to deal with your sin yourself. I was talking once with a student a year or two ago who was like that. He knew he needed Jesus. He knew there was forgiveness there. But he also wanted to sort of clean up his own life first and then come to Jesus to be forgiven. And as we spoke, I tried to help him understand that he got it in the wrong order. It's not that you clean yourself up first and then you come to Jesus. It's rather that you realize you cannot clean yourself up. You can never become presentable. And so you have to just take your sin as ugly as it is and go to Jesus and ask him to take all of that ugliness. So if you're proud and trying to solve your sins yourself, give it up. You'll never be able to do enough. Go to Jesus and exchange your sins for his righteousness. Maybe you're too lazy or unconcerned to do it. You think you've got plenty of time. You're young. You probably have a long life ahead of you. You'll have some fun before you give your sins over to Jesus and start being one of his. But would you be lazy if you had borrowed $100 or $1,000 from a friend and owed them that lump sum of money? And you heard that your $1,000 debt could be forgiven if you would just go a little ways and sign some papers and you would owe nothing? You'd be free and clear? Maybe some of you have $1,000 in your wallet right now. I somehow doubt it. I bet if you heard that you didn't have to owe $1,000 anymore, you would run and you would sign those papers and you would rejoice that your debt had been canceled. You, unbeliever, have a massive burden of sin, a massive debt of sin, which is far greater than a mere $1,000. It's something that you cannot pay for on your own. The debt will crush you. And so don't be lazy or unconcerned. Go to Jesus today just as you would go to get your debt of $1,000 canceled. Go to Jesus and get your sin debt canceled. He will take it, and he has borne the punishment for it. And you can have only grace and blessing instead. Maybe some of you are uncertain that Jesus actually wants to take your sin. You wouldn't really want to take someone else's sin. That doesn't sound very enjoyable. Does Jesus really want to take your sin and freely bless you with his grace instead? He does. Just picture him in your mind's eye hanging on that cross, his arms outstretched to receive any who will come to him. And even as he's hanging on that cross in agony, he forgives the sins of a thief hanging next to him. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he does. He says, this day you will be with me in paradise. No matter how far away from God you are right now, Jesus does want to forgive you of all of your sins. The offer stands open to all. His cross is the proof of it. And you have only to trust him with your whole self. He will take your sins and give you his righteousness. Maybe you love your sin too much to give it up. Maybe that's why you haven't yet come to place your faith in Christ. That's why you haven't yet exchanged your sin for his righteousness. You'd rather have your sin than his righteousness. If that's the case, then consider Moses. Hebrews 11.24 tells us that by faith Moses, when he was grown up, 
refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses grew up as the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh, the most powerful person on earth. And yet he chose to leave all of that behind instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin that could have been his if he just stayed and become a part of Egyptian culture. He went out into the wilderness and then he wandered with the murmuring, grumbling Israelites. He chose that path in obedience to God's call on his life because he was looking to the reward. And he knew that following God had a greater reward at the end than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt. So no matter how much you're enjoying your sin now, its end will be disaster. Its end is ruin and desolation. Don't be fooled by the fleeting, the quickly disappearing pleasures of sin. Instead, know that to be with Christ, even to be reproached and hated with Christ, is greater wealth, greater riches than your sin could ever offer you. So look at your sin, the sin that you love so much, and see it in its true ugliness. Realize that you don't actually want it anymore, and give it to Jesus. He will take it and give you his grace instead. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you have never done it before, then this day, exchange your sins for the grace of Christ. We have one misconception about the grace of Christ and then two practical ways to enjoy it. Misconception, I only exchange once. I only exchange once. This is a common misconception, and it's the misconception that the, the exchange between my sin and Jesus' grace happens at the moment of my conversion, speaking to Christians now. If you are a true Christian, then at the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he took all of your sins and all of the punishment due them, and he gave you his perfect record of righteousness and his perfect acceptance with the Father. That happened once and for all. That is a glorious thing. That is something that we should think on every day, something that we can enjoy Jesus about every day. Every single day we can talk to Jesus and say, thank you so much that on that cross you bore the punishment for my sins so that I don't have to. Thank you so much for giving me your perfect righteous record, for living the life that I couldn't live, and then giving me the credit for it. Every day we can enjoy Jesus because of that day 2,000 years ago when he took our sin on the cross. Now, that is a, a wonderful one-time exchange. But the misconception is that that exchange only happens once, that the only thing we can enjoy Jesus about is for something he did 2,000 years ago or for something that I did about 11 years ago, that some of you did a few years ago or a few months ago, in believing in Jesus and exchanging your sin for his grace. But in fact... Exchanging your sins for Jesus' grace is not something that you do only once at the moment of your salvation. 
It is something that you can do and ought to do every single day of your Christian life. The Apostle John makes this plain in his first letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Writing to believers, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John is arguing against some people who had infiltrated the church that he was writing to. And these people claimed that they didn't sin anymore. They had trusted in Jesus, and now their lives were just perfect. John says anybody who claims that is deceiving themselves. But in fact, the path of the true Christian, their habitual daily practice, is to confess their sins and then find that God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. John teaches that every single day we can exchange our sins for Jesus' righteousness. That habitually we can confess our sins and find cleansing. The question that raises, the problem that raises, is how does that not undermine the finished work of Christ? You're from a good church. I know your church loves to proclaim that Christ's work is finished, that there's nothing to be added to it. You can't do anything to improve upon the cross work of Christ. It's done. You don't need to do any works. You don't need to add something to it. Rather, Jesus Christ once for all bore your sins that you are now totally forgiven, totally justified, totally accepted by God. There's nothing that can or needs to be added to it. If that's true, if you are so totally forgiven by God at the very moment of your conversion, then how can John say that we should be regularly confessing our sins and finding forgiveness? How can it be that you are 100% forgiven at conversion and that you also need to be forgiven every single day when you sin? How do those fit together? I think it's really helpful to consider a scene from the life of Jesus that's recorded in John chapter 13. This is in the upper room the night before Jesus is betrayed and then goes to the cross. John chapter 13 Verse 4 says that Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean. 
Washing feet was work for the lowliest of servants. And so when Jesus, the dignified teacher, starts to wash his disciples' feet, it makes them uncomfortable. It makes Peter so uncomfortable that he initially refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. He says, no, you are never going to wash my feet. And then Jesus explains that this is a, a symbol of his cleansing of his disciples. And so he tells Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter, if you are not cleansed by me, then you don't have anything to do with me. If you refuse to be cleansed, then you can't be part of my disciples. And Peter's like, well, I, I want to have a share of Jesus. I want to belong to him. So, okay, wash my feet. But, but don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands. Wash my head. I need a full bath. And Jesus says to him, in essence, Peter, you've already had a bath. I've already completely cleansed you. You do trust me. You are completely clean. You've had that bath, and now you just need your feet to be washed. Because in that day, all they had were sandals, and they walked on dusty roads that all sorts of camels and donkeys had already passed over. When somebody took a journey and arrived at a destination, if they had bathed, then they would generally be clean except for their feet in sandals walking along disgusting roads. And so they just needed their feet to be cleaned from the dust and the muck that they'd picked up that day. And so similarly, Christian, you have been completely cleansed by the finished work of Christ. And every single day that you live, you pick up muck and dirt. You walk around in a sinful world and you commit sins in your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions. You have been totally cleansed by Jesus and you've picked up some new dirt today on your feet. And you need Jesus to wash your feet again this day. And so precisely because you've already had that bath, you can go back to Jesus and say, would you wash my feet off again? I got them dirty again. Would you please take these specific sins that I did this day and would you just wash my feet off so I can be totally clean again? That's not a contradiction because you have been totally cleansed. There is no more wrath left in the Father's heart. There is no more punishment due to you. You are totally, completely forgiven. Your union with God is secure. But sin ruptures your day-to-day -day communion with God. And so the cleansing and forgiveness that you need to experience every day is not a forgiveness about your union with God, but a forgiveness about your communion with God. You want to have a close, deep, unhindered relationship with God. The sins that you do every day interrupt that communion. They rupture your fellowship and your enjoyment of God. And so every day, you can look at yourself, see the sins that you've done, and then take them to Jesus in exchange for his grace anew. You have been completely cleansed. You are united with God. And every day, to have a deeper communion with him, you can take your sins to Jesus in exchange for his gracious righteousness.
you're completely clean, Christian. You just need a foot bath. Two practical ways now to enjoy the grace of Jesus. Way number one. In every failure, enjoy the Son's gracious forgiveness. In every failure, enjoy the Son's gracious forgiveness. Have you ever heard a pseudo-apology? A non-apology? An apology that sort of sounds like an apology but isn't really one? For example, your friend says to you, I'm sorry for laughing at you in front of all your friends when you tripped and fell flat on your face. But it looked really funny, and I'm sure nobody remembered it for long. Oh, and I'm sorry for posting it on my Instagram where it got 100 likes. I'm really sorry. It sort of sounds like an apology, but if you look into it, it's not really an apology. It's not the same as somebody saying, I, I am so sorry that I laughed when you tripped, and I get that that was totally embarrassing, and it was out of place for me to do that. I should have been more compassionate. I should have checked if you were okay, and it was just totally insensitive of me to, to post it on my Instagram, and I went and I deleted the post, and I hope I can make it up to you. Will you please forgive me? That's a totally different apology. That's a real apology in contrast to that pseudo-apology, the fake apology. Sometimes we try to give God pseudo-apologies. We Christians, even, when we see our own sins, don't want to go to God and actually tell him, I sinned. Will you please forgive me? Instead, we try to make excuses. We try to come up with reasons why our sin wasn't as bad as it initially seems. Like, God, I know I, I snapped at my sibling the other day, I raised my voice, but, but they were being really irritating, and I'd had a stressful day of school, and I was having some issues with this other friend, and I was just really on edge, and then my sibling just pushed my buttons like they know how to do, and that's why I, I snapped, God. That's not an apology, that's making excuses. And in fact, making excuses is the opposite of asking for forgiveness. Because if you really have an excuse, then you don't need to be forgiven. If I am walking past you and I accidentally step on your foot, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, I was distracted, I didn't see you there. I've got an excuse, and I don't need to say, I am so sorry, will you please forgive me for stomping on your foot, because I have an excuse. It's a crowded room, I'm just trying to get somewhere. It's okay. Excuses. I don't need forgiveness. Versus if I come up to you and actually stomp on your foot, and then I need to ask for forgiveness. It, it doesn't do any good for me to try to come up with some excuses why I'm really justified in that. I need to genuinely ask you for forgiveness. So I can either go the route of excuses or I can go the route of forgiveness. I can't do both. They're opposite directions. And so with God, when you go to him, you can either offer him excuses why he doesn't actually need to forgive you because you didn't do anything that wrong in the first place. Or you cannot make any excuses, own your sin, ask for forgiveness, and be guaranteed to receive forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, we read it earlier. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only way that you can enjoy the Son's gracious forgiveness in every failure is if you stop making excuses to God when you sin, but instead own your sin, come before him, and simply ask to be forgiven. Stop making excuses, stop giving pseudo-apologies, give real apologies, and enjoy the grace that you will receive. Once you've done that, once you have taken the sin that you do every day and come to Jesus and said, I did it again, will you please forgive me and receive that forgiveness? Once you've done that, do nothing. Do nothing. Nothing else. There isn't anything more that you need to do in order to be forgiven by Jesus. There isn't one more deed that you need to add in order to get him to take that sin, wash your feet, and fill you with his grace. Do nothing. Because Jesus is doing nothing. He's already done it all on the cross. He said, it is finished. And so he doesn't have anything more to do to take care of your sin. In fact, the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 describes how Jesus is doing nothing in contrast to the Old Testament priests. Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Old Testament priests, always standing, always working, always offering more sacrifices, never actually taking away sins. Work, 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 activity, activity, activity. Next verse, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Did you know that there were no chairs in the temple that Solomon built or in the tabernacle that was erected in the wilderness? There was an Ark of the Covenant. There was a menorah lampstand. There was a table for some bread. There were altars for offering animals. There were no chairs because the work was never priests could never sit down because their work was never done. Jesus is so totally finished with his work that he's just up in a heavenly lazy boy. He's got nothing more to do. Now, Jesus is active in the sense that Romans 8 says that he is interceding for us, he is praying for us, he is advocating before us, for us on our behalf before his Father. So, He's not really in a lazy boy. And if you only think about that, that would take it too far. But in terms of what Jesus has to do in order to take care of your sins, he's totally done. He's done it all. He is sitting down. He is waiting until the time comes for him to return. There is no more work for Jesus to do to take care of your sin. He is doing nothing. Christian, don't be busier than Jesus. Don't try to do something about your sin when Jesus has already done it all. If Jesus is up in heaven saying, it's all done, then don't you be down here on earth being like, no, I, I got to do something. I got to make it up to God. I got to get up early tomorrow and read my Bible. I got to do some good deeds. I got to obey better next time. I got to do, do, do. No. Look at your sin. 
take it to Jesus, ask for forgiveness, receive his grace, and then believe that it's done. And do nothing else. Stop trying to fix your sin by doing better next time. Tim Chester in Enjoying God says, We need to be busy doing nothing because we so easily start trying to do something. We actively need to stop ourselves trying to prove ourselves. We default to trying to win God's approval through our actions, and we need to stop. Jesus is glad to receive your sins in exchange for his righteousness. It can be hard to believe. Does Jesus really want to see you every day coming up to him and be like, Jesus, here's more disgusting sin? Is he really excited every single day to say, all right, here's more grace, here's more forgiveness? Wouldn't Jesus rather do something else? Well, no. John Owen wrote, There is not anything that Jesus Christ is more delighted with than that his saints should always have communion with him in this business of giving and receiving. Nothing makes Jesus happier than when you realize that you are a miserable failure and come to him and say, please, Jesus, you're my only hope. Take my sin and give me your grace. When you do that, a smile lights up his face. There's nothing he would rather do than get rid of your miserable sin burden and give you lots of grace instead. So every day, if you want to make Jesus happy, figure out what sort of miserable sin is bogging you down and give it to him and get that foot bath. First practical way was in every failure, enjoy the son's gracious forgiveness. Second practical way, in every pain, Enjoy the Son's gracious sympathy. In every pain, enjoy the Son's gracious sympathy. In all four Gospels, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his heart. When the Bible speaks about the heart, it isn't talking about the heart that you see on Hallmark cards. It's all gushy and gooey and emotional and about romance and Valentine's Day. It includes that, but it's far more. In the Bible, the the heart is the, the deepest part of who you are. It's your control center. It's what animates you. It's the center of your personality. Your heart is who you really are. And Jesus tells us in just one place in the Gospels what his heart is like. He describes it so that we might know. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light 
the one place Jesus gives us insight into his heart, he does not say that he is stern and demanding. He does not say that he is holy and wrathful. He does not say that he is inviting and helpful. He says that he is gentle and lowly. That he has compassion. That he is not proud, but humble, willing to receive you. Jesus offers rest for you if you feel burdened, if you're tired of laboring, if you have a heavy load upon you. He promises rest. So in every pain in your life, you can enjoy the Son's gracious sympathy. Every time something goes wrong, every time you feel the ache that comes from living in this world with so much that goes off the rails, you can come to Jesus and find rest and receive his sympathy. Jesus cares. He's not detached. He's not far off. He feels for you. The author of Hebrews expands upon this in chapter 4. Hebrews 4.15 describes Jesus and says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Maybe you doubt that Jesus really understands you because he's God. And God doesn't sin. God's never tempted by sin. So how can Jesus understand what my life is like when I get tempted every day and I so often give in? How can Jesus understand anything of what it's like to be me? Jesus does understand. The Son of God came to earth and took on a true human nature. Jesus was God, is God, and is also man. And when he went through life, he did not use his godness as a superpower so that he had it easy. Rather, he experienced temptation in all the same sorts of ways that you experience temptation. And he always, in response, didn't give in, but perfectly trusted his Father. Just like you ought to do, Christian, when you're presented with temptation. Perfectly trust your Heavenly Father and resist this temptation. Jesus is able to sympathize because he has been tempted. Not with the exact same temptations. He was never tempted to be a troll on the internet. He was never tempted to skip vacuuming the floors. There were no vacuums back then. He wasn't tempted with the same exact things that you are, but he was tempted in the same ways, in the same categories. No, he wasn't tempted to not vacuum the floors, but he was tempted to disobey his parents. No, he was never tempted to be an internet troll, but he was tempted to say mean things to people. All of the temptations that you experience, Jesus also experienced something like it. 
and he never gave in. Which means he is perfectly qualified to be your substitute when you fail and to be your encourager when you're fighting to resist that temptation. Jesus is able to sympathize with you even today. Do you realize that Jesus took his human body with him back to heaven? Jesus still has a human body. He did not cease to be a true man when he returned to be with his father after his resurrection. There is a man standing in heaven at the right hand of God. And that is Jesus Christ. He still retains his humanity, which means he still knows what it's like to be you. It's like a man who grew up in a slum and then worked hard and made his way out of the slum and now lives in a nice house miles away. But every week he goes back to the slum to see his friends who are still living there. He leaves open, this rich man leaves open a way in his heart that the pain and the suffering of his friends can come in and still affect him. And so similarly, Jesus, who no longer lives in the slum of this earth, but in the glory of heaven, because he is still truly human, has left open a way for his heart to be affected by your pain. And so in every pain, you can enjoy his gracious sympathy. Tim Chester says it this way, How do we experience Christ? We remember Jesus still has a human body, and he still remembers what life on earth is like. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. The only difference is now he has the capacity to sympathize with all of his people. We enjoy the Son by receiving his grace in exchange for our sins. That happens particularly gloriously at conversion, when you give all of your sins to Jesus and are completely cleansed. And then it also happens day by day as you take those individual sins and bring them to Jesus to receive grace instead. You are completely clean, Christian, and you can still get a foot bath from Jesus every day. In every failure, you can enjoy his gracious forgiveness, and in every pain, you can enjoy his gracious sympathy. I love the first verse of the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. As long as Jesus stands in heaven, in a human body, at the right hand of the Father, no one can force you to go away. No accusation from Satan and no accusation from your own heart can prevent your access to the very throne of God. Pray with me.
Jesus, you are full of grace, more full of grace than we are of sin. Paul said it rightly, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sin abounded, but grace superabounded. Your grace is greater than all of our sin. And so, Jesus, we do come and we confess that we are sinners. We confess that we have sinned this week. We confess that we have sinned this morning and what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so we ask, because of your sacrifice, Jesus, please have mercy on us and forgive us. And if there are any here who have never exchanged their sins for your righteousness, then send your Holy Spirit and move them to do so even now. In Jesus' name, amen. You're very fast. <laughs> Why did you put your hand up so quickly? Because I want the book. You want the book? Okay. Okay. You can have the book. I will explain why it is so amazing, and then the rest of you can go and beg Clifton to buy you the book, or beg your parents to buy you the book. Please do. Yeah. Here's a secret. If you actually would read a good Christian book, then any of your pastors and probably most of your parents would gladly buy it for you. It's going to cost 10, 15, 20 bucks tops, but if you really want to read it because you know that it's going to help you to have a deeper relationship with God, then any adult in your life who has a moderate amount of money and loves you would be overjoyed to buy you a book. So you should all go and get somebody to buy you a copy of this book, Gentle and Lonely, because this is I probably one of my top three favorite Christian books that I have ever read, and I've read a lot of Christian books. Um, I read this in April of 20, when did this come out? 2020? 2021? April 2020. Um, so it's a recent book and is destined to be a classic. This is going to be a book that 30 years from now, people will be like, oh yeah, have you read that book? Like, that's just one of the greatest books ever. Like, it's that good. This is a book about the heart of Christ. It is a book about how Jesus feels toward you. There are lots of Christian books that tell you what you should do. This is not one of those books. There are lots of Christian books that tell you about what Jesus did, like, Dying on the cross. Those are good. This is not one of those books. This is a book not about what you should do or about what Jesus has done, but about how Jesus feels toward you. And as the title implies, it's that he is gentle and lowly. He is just so overflowing with kindness and compassion. He wants nothing more than to just wrap you into his arms and love you and comfort you. It is a beautiful book. It changed the way that I see God. It has caused me to realize just how gentle the heart of God is and just how much God is for me and not against me. I highly, highly recommend it. You get it, and the rest of you can go beg somebody to buy it. All right. It is time for discussion questions.
So leaders, get out your pens. Okay. Question number one. What is the difference between getting a bath from Jesus and getting a foot bath from Jesus? What's the difference between getting a bath from Jesus and getting a foot bath from Jesus? John 13 is the place to go if you want to look into that. Question number two. When you sin, what are you tempted to do instead of exchanging with Jesus? When you sin, what are you tempted to do instead of exchanging with Jesus? Question number three. Imagine Jesus is looking at you from heaven. What expression do you think is on his face? Imagine Jesus is looking at you from heaven. What expression is on his face? And then I recommend that you close by praying, specifically by praying a prayer of confession, by practicing what we've talked about in this session, by personally and publicly telling Jesus about a sin that is weighing you down, giving it to him and asking him for his grace instead. You can do this tactfully. You don't have to unearth your deepest, darkest secret. You can speak in generalities. You can choose common sins. All of that is okay. I'm not asking for you to be uh, overly, overly vulnerable beyond what would be appropriate or beyond what you're comfortable with. But it is healthy for us to confess our sins to one another. In fact, it's commanded and encouraged over in James. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. And so I'd encourage you to end small group that way by praying short prayers of confession to Jesus and receiving in that moment his daily forgiveness and washing. You're dismissed. <laughs>